Hispanics, Latinos, Latinx people. However you define this overlapping set of groups, whatever you call it, it is clearly the fastest growing demographic in the state of Texas and one that does not yet command the political power that its numbers would make you expect. We are talking today with someone who has definite ideas about why that is so. Tony Diaz is a political analyst, college professor, and Chicano hellraiser. He's the founder of Los Libro Traficantes, a group that smuggles books to places they're needed, and also of Nuestra Palabra, Latino writers having their say. It is Monday, September 26th. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. A quick note, if you notice that my voice sounds a little strange today, it's because I'm dealing with the aftermath of the flu. Get your shots, y'all. Hey, Tony. Thanks for being with us. No, my pleasure. Great to join you. Yeah. So earlier this month, a new U.S. Census estimate came out that Hispanics are now the largest demographic group in Texas, you know, roughly 40% of the population. And they make up roughly 30% of registered voters here in the state. So explain this to me. Why do we not see more Latino office holders? What is going on? Well, I think there's this huge disconnect. That particular survey or research said Hispanic. There's folks that identify with different terms. Mm -hmm. But we're kind of stuck at this point where there's a desire for national entities to create a name or identity for us. And that's one thing, but on the ground, it's very different. So I call it, and I have, I got to plug my book here. Sorry. So I'm the author of a book, <laughs> The Tip of the Pyramid, uh-huh. Cultivating Community Cultural Capital. And one thing I talk about is that let, let's call it corporate politics. They're going to define the term one way. What I say in the book is that corporate executives are illiterate about Latinos. And you can see it when folks in the whole corporate political industry talk about the white vote. Now, I sound ridiculous saying, hey, which way is the white vote swinging? But that's the same thing as saying the Latino vote. And when you're watching TV, I will hear paid political pundits talk about the white vote, but they'll say things like male suburban voters who are homeowners in the suburbs are voting this way. That's pretty specific. Mm-hmm. And then when they talk about us, Latinos are going to do this. So they, they lump us all together and they don't articulate it. And I think that that's part of the big disconnect that results in low voter turnout, lower outreach, lower participation. And like you pointed out, Houston's never had a Latino mayor, even though we're probably half the population is Latino. So, like, we keep hearing that any day now, the growing Latino population is going to fuel a blue wave that Democrats are suddenly going to take over Texas. Um, Do you think that is oversimplifying how Latinos will vote? I think year by year, Mm -hmm. it should start to dawn on people that despite the fact that there is this huge amount of Latinos, there may come a day where we're even less and less represented. Uh, I mean, you see it again. Let's just bring Houston, which is a Democratic base out of 16 
city council representatives. Right now, there's only one Latino city council representative. And there's several Which ways. Which is astounding. Astounding. There's several ways to to break that down. Um, and of course, when people are starting to talk about voter suppression, that's one thing. Gerrymandering, that's another thing. Um, engaging younger voters. Uh, most people will tell you that our population is very young, but there's laws that are supposed to dictate that the youth get registered to vote. I meet high school student after high school student after high school student that said that's not the case. And again, what I would say in my book, just to bring it home hard, is we're allowed to prosper, but not rule. Yeah. So you said they are not going to allow Latinos to take power. Who is the they? Who are you talking about there? So in my again, uh, I'm plugging the book. Yeah. Again. I'm yes, plug, I'm gonna plug the book again. <laughs> um, uh-huh. The 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 fault setting for race and culture in the United States is white. Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you de- depending on which class you're in at the time, and some of these classes are about to be bad, so hurry up and take them. <laughs> you, know, you can say which, which layer. But that's the that's the challenging part. Until we sit down and, and read the user agreements every day, we are all signing user agreements to uphold this. And w- one example would be um, we're going to go back to the whole idea of what to call us. Even when we engage in that, mm-hmm. we as Latinos are not participating in an intellectual discussion. We're participating in clickbait, and I'm not against clickbait because you know, hey, we all need clicks and likes. Uh, however. Just the very fact that we don't see white executive males, you know, dissecting their, you know, should we be called Anglo? I don't know. I'm Anglo-American. No, I'm white today. You know, that that's, we're at a disadvantage because we are quibbling about our secondary identity term versus simply ruling. And again, then you have this other system that blames us mm-hmm. by saying, well, y'all can't get your act together and decide what to be called. And so could you just break that down? You're talking about, are we saying Hispanic? Are we saying Latinx? Are we saying Latino, Chicano? So when I teach my Mexican literature course, which has not been bad yet, so I don't know, I don't know if that will get caught up in all these censorship bills that are <laughs> prol- <laughs> proliferating <For> <laughs> in Texas. So right now, <laughs> it is not underground yet. Yeah. Um, but when yeah. I get to that topic... I limit it to one week and I limit it to two dozen names. And those names for identity terms go from the ones that people will recognize as Hispanic, Mexican, Latino. There's additional ones, Afro-Latino, Texas-Mexican, Black-Sican, Chicano, Chicana, Chicanx, Latine. <laughs> the list goes on and on. And again, myself as an artist and as a professor and as your guest, my job is to complicate the issues, Lisa. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just kind of uh-huh. uh, because as an artist, I don't want to make it easier for corporations to Google us. I insist that we be complicated, uh, nuanced individuals, which is what every artist I think will insist for themselves. Which doesn't make it easier to pinpoint us. But I will say this though corporations don't want to know us. They want to own us. They want to be able to say, make up your mind so we can sell you these 30 things and come up with the price and then always send you notifications when the next version of that is up. Yeah. And so what does it look like resisting that? How would you do it? 
Well, well, I think for me, the response has been to be a writer and to create and to update language. The challenge really is, and, and again, I, I think I want to make clear that I don't judge people for any of these tendencies. And one thing that we as the Libro Traficantes and members of Nuestra Palabra, we don't want to take away an identity term without leaving something in its place. So my job isn't to go on the East End to go to, you know, Doña Marias and argue with someone and say, no, that's not the right term. You know, <laughs> whatever, whatever uh-huh. they feel at home with and whatever language they feel at home with, I want to meet people on their terms. But I also know that this is complicated because the trappings of language insist that, well, at some point, somebody's got to register you to vote. Uh, and, and again, there's the legal eye and the ego eye. The legal eye means that, hey, Tony, this is all cute, but somebody's got to sign the line to be a director of a nonprofit. You got to document your art group on the 501c3 category. Right. So it's got to sign. The U.S. Census <laughs> wants to know right. something. Want, and it there, helps. <laughs> there's an advantage to count right. that. And at the end of the day, we have to win elections to change the same policies that I'm complaining about. So it's a, a big, wonderful mess. When we are energized and inspired to vote, wonderful things happen. I mean, Lina Hidalgo became county commissioner and nobody saw that coming. And I would say even the former county commissioner, I remember directly, I was at an event and he dismissed the opponent and the other folks in the room dismissed the opponent and she came and she won. I would argue, though, that that's not going to happen again for Latinos. We will not be dismissed as easy candidates. And you can see that up and down across the board. And that's the other challenge. So things are changing. And and I also want to make clear that it's happening because I'm in Texas, I'm in Houston, I'm in the U.S. And because I can do all that, I did get a great education. But I'll say this, that's at stake as well. And I think one thing you're going to see changing is that Perhaps is a whole segment of Latinos, whatever we call ourselves, that in the past mm-hmm. could just say, you know what, I can't get involved in this issue or that issue. I'm going to lower my head and just work. Why? Because the next generation could, you know, go to school, educated, and they could surpass their previous education like I did with, with my father. I make more money than he ever did. That Those days are ending. And because of laws, including Mm -hmm. the banning of ethnic studies in Arizona, attacks on censorship, which are hurting classes in the school, the fact we don't have ethnic studies, the fact that we're not graduating at the same rates, the fact of student loans, it may not be possible for subsequent generations to do better than the previous generation. So you're going to see Mexican-American families waking up to this fact and saying, what do we do? Well, you best get registered to vote and get involved in policy and run for office and be engaged. So I think that's going to happen before the outside world comes in and takes our hand and delivers us to the voting booth, or we just continue to stay disengaged. So to, to me, that that's that's looming. All right. Real quick. You are in Los Angeles right now on your book tour. And At the same time, you're there for Los Libro Traficantes, the book smugglers. I hear that y'all have a California connection now. Are you going to be smuggling some banned books into Texas? (laughs) Well, although it's tempting to want to 
get political asylum here in California. We, we will not. <laughs> and I want to make clear that we From came, Texas. Exactly. Like California would accept you and protect yeah. you. <laughs> and I want to make clear that we were not tricked here by the governor of Texas. So we weren't tricked here on a bus as he's doing the families. <laughs> So we, we're not here. We're here of our own accord. We're Tony, not- <laughs> I bet he charter a bus just for you. Uh-huh. Yeah, exactly. You know, you know. Um, yeah. But we are turning to our California brothers and sisters where they have passed ethnic studies, not just as a high school requirement. It's a, it's a requirement at the undergraduate level. They are looking at the K through 12 implementation of ethnic studies and also teacher certification. But we will say this, they're not banning the books the way books are being banned in Texas, but there are still book deserts. So we're here to team up with our allies, make sure that we make it clear that we're one movement, learn from each other. But we want to make it clear, too, that there are other ways that that books are being kept from our community. And we want to make sure that all that is dressed, because if you look at all the Chicano, Chicana communities throughout the nations, they're in Wisconsin book deserts. So, and it's, we're here to have a lot of fun with our Khalifas brothers and sisters. So, Tehatslanica, Khalifatslan, unite <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to thwart book banners. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Tony. This has been really fun. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. Always fun to chat with you. Thanks for all you do. That was Tony Diaz. We'll have a link to his book and also to Nuestra Palabra in our show notes. Next up, I am with producer Carly on Jones. Carly, what's going on around Houston today? Hey, Lisa. A family was awarded $95.5 million by a Houston jury after a child suffered irreversible brain damage during a dentist visit back in January of 2016. Nevaeh Hall, who was four at the time, experienced drug-induced seizures and oxygen deprivation during a treatment for a decayed tooth. The dentist, Bethaniel Jefferson, is alleged to have physically restrained the child, neglectfully medicated her, and then kept her away from her mother once she began having seizures. Hall, who is now 10, remains under 24-hour medical care because she can no longer speak, walk, or eat on her own since the incident. Hall's family testified in court that they are grateful for the service and attention of the jury and that they hope that the verdict will help prevent other families from suffering preventable tragedies like this one. That is it for our show today. Follow us on Instagram. We are at CityCast Houston. We'll be back tomorrow. Talk with you then. Are y'all there? Am I alone?